strong. Ash. Bone. And sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches. The past unburied. The books unsealed. The old celebration returning. Hello and welcome to my study. Please come in, have a seat. The uh, gentleman to my right, of course, is my valet, Wilkinson. Pleased to meet you. He'll be reading any directly quoted passages we use from the books we uh, pull from the shelves here. Um, now, before we get into the uh, meat of our episode, I'd like to uh, put forward an idea that Wilkinson and I have been discussing. Uh, we'd like to invite listeners to submit uh, questions for the show via our contact page on uh, our website, boneandsickle.com. If you've sent messages previously, you may want to send them again, as there's a better chance Mr. Reidenauer will now be reading and replying. Replying on air, so to speak. I'm not going to be responding in kind to individual messages via email. I'm not looking for uh, pen pals. The idea, well, if I may, sir. Please. The idea would be to pose a question that may be of general interest to other listeners. Something along the range of topics Mr. Ridenauer normally presents, that is, having to do with folklore or horror or related history. That's right. Uh, not show topics. Uh, short questions we'll handle during our opening segment. And as always, Wilkinson will be screening what comes in. I may never see your question if it's not an appropriate submission. I can see to it that guidelines are posted to the page. Yes, but uh, we really don't have time to go through all those in this segment. I'm sure listeners will have some interesting ideas for questions. Perhaps there's some curiosity of folklore you've always wondered about. Maybe you'd like to know the origin of some custom. Or even something about how the show is put together. Or uh, questions about the collections here in the study. And if don't ask where the house is. And if your question is rejected as unsuitable for on-air discussion, you'll still get a reply. Yes, not a personal reply, but a cause for rejection letter. I'm uh, working on the form. There will be uh, little boxes for Wilkinson to tick in order to help you understand uh, what went wrong with your query. I would imagine in some cases it would just be a matter of reformulating the question or some minor detail. And no personal questions. I, I don't mind personal questions. Well, that's good. I want the show to feel more uh, intimate and personal. And I want listeners to uh, have the impression it's uh, possible to interact with us here at the show. Maybe even have a measure of control in uh, shaping the show we do. People love uh, intimacy and control. I'm sure your efforts will be appreciated, sir. One would hope. Anyway, let's get started. Episode 22, The Devil's Due, Musicians and Marksmen. So, uh, I am your host, Al Ridenauer, and this show, Bone and Sickle, if it's your first time tuning in, uh, explores the uh, intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started all this as a way to 
expand upon material related to my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. In this episode, we'll be continuing from our last episode about Faust with uh, more tales of uh, deals with the devil. Bone and Sickle is made possible exclusively through the generosity of our Patreon donors. I'll have more details on all that at the end of the show. The Phantom of the Opera. Come, if you dare, within these walls. On stage is color, beauty, and light. But in the shadows lurks a monstrous evil. I ended our last episode with the observation that Charles Gounod's uh, Faust was the opera around which uh, Gaston Leroux's uh, 1911 novel, The Phantom of the Opera, takes place, as does the Cheney film. There's an interesting connection to another opera I'll be getting uh, to at the uh, end of the show, one that has to do with the way uh, Leroux uh, muddled fact with fiction in his book, uh, one which begins with these words. Prologue in which the author of this singular work informs the reader how he acquired the certainty that the opera ghost really existed. Despite some of the uh, wilder theories on the internet, uh, clearly the book's prologue is just uh, the author's way to gin up interest in his story, but there uh, does seem to be a few historical events that were embedded in his uh, tale. There is, in fact, a lake beneath the uh, Paris Opera, or the uh, Palais Garnier, uh, its proper name, honoring the uh, architect Charles Garnier, who uh, apparently had trouble pumping out water when the foundation was excavated. The problem was solved by retaining the water in massive stone cisterns, the weight of which prohibited further inflow. Uh, there was also a lethal accident with a chandelier. Le Roux uh, was a journalist at Le Matin when, on May 21st, his newspaper reported, 500 kilos on a concierge's head. Actually, it was less than 10 kilos, and in truth, it was a counterweight to the chandelier, an accident caused when uh, cables melted in an electrical malfunction. But it did fall on the head of a uh, concierge of a boarding school. It was her first and uh, apparently only visit to the opera. Another bit of history woven in has to do with the Phantom's death. Leroux's novel has this happen off camera, so to speak. Upon releasing Christine, the Phantom exacts a promise from her to come bury him beneath the opera house, as he will soon die of a broken heart. In the prologue, it's implied his bones have been lately discovered. It will be remembered that later, when digging in the substructure of the opera, before burying the phonographic records of the artist's voice, the workmen laid bare a corpse. While there are also yarns on the internet about bones discovered beneath the uh, Palais Garnier, they don't seem to be true. However, the burial of uh, select opera recordings in a sort of uh, time capsule did take place, on Christmas Eve in 1907. One of those, retrieved on the centennial in 2007, happened to be a recording from Gnose Faust, sharing with contemporary audiences a serenade of a long-dead Mephistopheles. Ah, 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 
Now, outside the role the Faust opera plays as a background to the story, the Phantom of the Opera doesn't share our uh, deal with the devil theme. But this uh, 1974 Brian De Palma rock opera horror comedy does. 20th Century Fox presents Phantom of the Paradise, a gothic horror story. <laughs> what was that? This uh, rather bizarre cinematic hybrid updates the Phantom story, adding a uh, Faustian element. As one of the characters, the uh, music producer Swan, the owner of the Paradise, uh, has made a pact with the devil to preserve his youth. He's not the Phantom character, but steals musical compositions from a character named Winslow, who, in the process of trying to exact revenge on Swan, is disfigured and hidden confined within the Paradise nightclub, uh, thus becoming the Phantom of the Paradise. After imprisoning Winslow like this, Swan, uh, in an attempt to uh, earn better terms on his own deal with the devil, uh, offers Winslow a similar contract with the Dark One. And now we're in business. Together. We'll see this theme again later, uh, namely uh, that of the uh, signee of a devilish pact uh, recruiting another soul in an attempt to uh, prolong his life. Of course, this connection between the uh, music industry, particularly rock music, and the idea of souls sold to Satan is a, a common trope. It, it begins with bands like uh, Coven, whose satanic invocation uh, opened our last episode and really blossoms throughout the 1960s with bigger bands like the Rolling Stones, uh, faddish intrigue with the Luciferian and passing friendship with the occultist Kenneth Anger. It uh, likewise inspired Led Zeppelin's uh, Jimmy Page to purchase uh, Alistair Crowley's Bolskin house on Loch Ness. Even folksier 60s figures have uh, alluded to a deal with the devil. That's when I went to the crossroads and made a, a big deal. One one night, and then uh, went back to Minneapolis, and I was like, hey, uh, where's this guy been? You know, he went to the crossroads. But of course, uh, Bob Dylan's speaking metaphorically here, uh, trying to associate himself with the blues folklore of Robert Johnson. I'm not going to go into all this uh, rock musicians and the devil stuff, because it's very easy to find elsewhere. Um, the Robert Johnson legend was particularly well explored in a Radio Lab episode many of you might have heard. But for those who haven't, uh, suffice it to say that the legend seems to have arisen from uh, Johnson's song, Me and the Devil Blues. Me and the devil were walking side by side. Which uh, doesn't explicitly mention a bargain, though it could be implied by the line... I believe it's time to go. Which some have interpreted as the uh, contractual claiming of the soul. Uh, also figuring into the legend is uh, his song Crossroads, which uh, mentions uh, nothing of the devil and seems to mainly be about uh, being down and out and having difficulty flagging a ride. I went to the But all of this was enough to lead to some mythologizing by excitable blues fans 
when, uh, decades after the singer died in 1938, Johnson was rediscovered. Though there's no record of this legend existing during Johnson's uh, life, the whole thing may have arisen thanks to uh, confusion with uh, blues artist Tommy Johnson, to whom the legend was attached as early as 1971. Uh, This was 15 years after his death. Uh, Some have also speculated that the tale could be related to the fact that Johnson, Robert, was uh, said to have practiced in cemeteries where his playing would not disturb the living. Cemeteries, uh, all the way back to the classical period, have been traditionally a place to work uh, dark magic, as we've seen in the uh, ancient necromancy episode. Uh, Same for the ancient Greeks and uh, Crossroads, which were a place to leave offerings for the uh, witch goddess Hecate. The tradition continued in uh, medieval Europe, where the Crossroads were a place uh, beyond the laws of civilization, a location for burying suicides and criminals and working magic. So, some have attempted to lend a certain exoticism to the story by connecting Johnson to voodoo, where crossroads are also a place uh, to work magic. But it seems unnecessary, as the uh, Americanized hoodoo, which is as close to voodoo as Johnson really would have uh, known, uh, borrows heavily from European traditions I've mentioned. Talking about a ritual contract with Satan seems to... uh, put too fine a point on something real but uh, less defined an assumption that uh, blues musicians had a more informal connection with the uh, forbidden underworld symbolized by the devil Uh, the folk archivist and musicologist Alan Lomax summed it up nicely in fact every blues fiddler banjo picker harp blower piano strummer and guitar framer was in the opinion of both himself and his peers a child of the devil a consequence of the black view of the european dance embraced as sinful in the extreme under particular suspicion here would be the violin for two reasons first as a particularly uh, lightweight and portable instrument the violin is an ideal candidate for furnishing music at uh, taverns and gatherings and second that it was a uh, relative latecomer to europe developed uh, first in italy in the 15th century from instruments arriving from the unchristian muslim east the violin's diabolical association persisted into the baroque period 17th century italian composer giuseppe tartini Uh, credited the uh, Dark One for his most famous work, his uh, violin sonata in G minor, better known as the Devil's Trill Sonata, Uh, something named both for its uh, particularly difficult finger work, but also its source. In 1765, he related its origin to the uh, French astronomer uh, Jérôme Lalande, who uh, recounted it in his travelogue of France and Italy. One night I dreamed I had sold my soul to the devil. Everything was at my command. My new servant anticipated every one of my wishes. Among other ideas, it struck me also to give him my violin to see if he would be able to play something nice on it. But how great was my surprise when I heard a sonata so 
wonderful and beautiful and rendered with so much art and intelligence that not the highest flight of fancy could have hoped to reach it. Upon awakening, uh, Tartini tried to recapture it, if imperfectly, resulting in those challenging uh, devilish trills. While the devil may have provided Tartini a creative spark, about a century later came uh, Niccolo Paganini, whose entire artistic being seemed engulfed in the flames of diabolical creativity and passion. Rumors of a uh, collaboration with the devil swirled throughout the career of this uh, Italian violinist and composer. It was said he'd signed a pact with Lucifer that audience members had seen the Dark One right up there on stage with him helping him play, that lightning struck his bow during a performance, uh, and even that the soul of a woman he murdered resided within the strings of his instrument. He was one of the first performers to play without the aid of sheet music, moving over the strings at unheard of speeds and producing certain rare harmonics and exhibiting string techniques uh, such as uh, bow bounces, uh, which were almost never seen. Reeling about on stage, his face and body contorted in creative fury, his presence was unlike anything seen on a concert stage. A 1915 issue of Violin World recreates the scene at a historic concert. You would take the violin to be a wild animal which he is endeavoring to quiet in his bosom, and which he occasionally, fiend-like, lashes with his bow, tearing from the creature the most horrid as well as delightful tones. While he was playing, a book caught fire on one of the music desks, which burned for some time unobserved by the musicians, who could neither see nor hear anything but the feats of this wonderful performer. The uh, French journal L'Entracte uh, fanatically declared, He's Satan on stage, Satan, knock-kneed, bandy-legged, double-jointed, and twisted, fall to the knees, O oh, Satan, and worship him. His unusual physical appearance contributed to this mystique. The German poet Heinrich Heine described the perpetually black-clad figure as A corpse risen from the grave, a vampire with a violin. The elongation of his form included notably elongated fingers, something uh, often cited as a source of his skill, but uh, just as likely would be the uh, brutal practice regimen to which he was subjected by his father, who would often deny food to the sickly boy when his performance uh, lacked. By the age of 15, Paganini had uh, begun the relentless touring that would occupy him until the age of 54. All of this, of course, took its toll, and the artist became famous for his uh, emotional breakdowns, alcoholism, gambling, and womanizing. But when women hear the voice of my violin, they do not hesitate to betray their husbands with me. Diabolical seduction. This devil incarnate, as the prosecutor calls him, this ugly, unscrupulous old man, has entranced the world and seduced countless women. Why have I never seen you in church? My father says you torture the baby Jesus. Did you know he's been in prison? Yes, for murder. I'll have you shot! You bitch! That's a bit from the 1989 biopic directed by and starring the uh, similarly tortured Klaus Kinski, 
who uh, particularly identified with the musician's relentless womanizing. This erotic fixation showed in Kinski's directorial focus, resulting in him being sued by his producers for handing in a film they deemed... Pornographic. And no, Paganini did not murder anyone. It's just one of the countless rumors. Though he did spend some time in prison in 1816 after being accused of drugging a pregnant girlfriend half his age in an effort to convince her to abort their loved child. Chronically ill and beset at various times by tuberculosis, effects of drinking, and syphilis, which in turn was treated with uh, opium, so there's that, uh, Paganini died in Nice on May 27, 1840. But that was hardly the end. Believing he uh, still had more time, Paganini had refused last rites when they were offered, which led to further rumors of his unholy alliances. So this refusal, along with his generally uh, indecent reputation, resulted in uh, burial and consecrated ground being denied by the Bishop of Nice. His embalmed body lay on its deathbed for two months, annoying the landlord who was eager to rent the quarters. It was then stashed in the basement where it lingered for over a year, then moved to storage in a hospital in Nice. After this became untenable, it was stored in a sealed room at an abandoned home for lepers in a nearby town. But the troubles continued, according to Charles Lahey's 1906 book, Famous Violinists of Today and Yesterday. And now Paganini became a terror to the ignorant peasants and fishermen who crossed themselves as they hurried past the spot where the excommunicated remains lay. It was said that in the dead of night, the specter of Paganini appeared and played the violin outside his resting place. The corpse was briefly moved into a disused vat belonging to a nearby olive oil factory, later to another private home in a town near Nice, and finally, four years later, to a home in Italy near Genoa, the artist's birthplace. It remained there for another 32 years amid further rumors of ghostly moanings and disturbances until Pope Gregory XVI himself finally approved burial in consecrated ground in 1876. Now, Paganini was compared many times to a Mephistopheles or a Dr. Faustus, but one 1831 description from uh, London's Athenium newspaper uh, saw him as a figure from another story of a deal with the devil. He is very Samuel in appearance and certainly a very devil in performance. Samuel is the name of a demon in an 1821 opera by German romantic Karl Maria von Weber namely Der Freischutz. Uh, the name is usually translated as uh, the marksman, and the opera story is based on an old German legend of the devil providing a huntsman a number of magic bullets, the majority of which are charmed to hit whatever the shooter wishes, while a small fraction remain exclusively under the devil's control. While these stories flourished in the 19th century, particularly in a literary format, I found at least one source that presents the legend as a genuine matter of folk belief. It's from court records cited in a journal from 1730 called Monthly Discussions from the Realm of the Spirits. 
and it presents an abortive attempt to uh, cast these magic bullets in 1710 in a town in Bohemia by a Georg Schmidt, a young clerk and lover of target shooting. A hunter relates to uh, Schmidt a story of how these magic bullets might be produced. So, late at night, the clerk and the hunter bring coals and molds for casting the bullets to a spot at the crossroads of all places. The hunter, with his knife, draws a magic circle inscribed with mysterious characters and instructs the clerk to disrobe, step within the circle, and renounce the Holy Trinity. At 11 o'clock, the dead coals began to glow of their own accord, and the two men began the molding, although all manner of ghostly apparitions tried to hinder them. At last, there came a horseman in black who demanded the bullets which had been cast. The hunter refused to yield them up, and in revenge, the horsemen threw something into the fire, which sent out so noxious an odor that the two venturesome men fell half dead within the circle. The mysterious hunter disappears, but the clerk is carried into town where he makes a confession in court and for his dealings with the evil one is sentenced to six years hard labor. The literary version of this legend appears in an 1811 book by Johann Appel called The Book of Ghosts. This volume was eagerly embraced by the Romantics. Mary and Percy Shelley, Lord Byron, and John Polidori read the book together while they were at Byron's home on Lake Geneva in 1816, and it was this book that inspired them to challenge each other to write their own horror stories. The result was uh, Polidori's The Vampire, which we discussed in episode 20, and of course, you know what Mary Shelley came up with. Apple's telling of the Freischutz legend uh, revolves around a young man, Wilhelm, in love with uh, Kätchen, uh, the daughter of the uh, royal uh, gamekeeper, who will only allow their marriage if Wilhelm can prove by his marksmanship uh, in a test before a royal commissioner that he's worthy to take up the uh, family profession of gamekeeper. Sadly, uh, Wilhelm has little skill at shooting until he meets a wooden-legged soldier in the forest who gives him a handful of bullets that somehow enable Wilhelm to take down the fastest game or the most uh, distant bird. When the gamekeeper witnesses Wilhelm's newfound skill, he asks him to help procure a large order of uh, game for the duke, and the charmed bullets begin to dwindle. Meanwhile, Wilhelm hears tales of magic bullets and how they might be crafted, and feeling he needs them for the uh, formal test, uh, he searches desperately to find again the uh, peg-legged soldier. He can't. And so he resolves to conduct the magic ritual he's heard described. At length he stood at the crossroads. The magic circle was drawn, the skulls were fixed, and the bones were laid round about. The moon buried itself deeper and deeper into the clouds, and no light was shed upon the midnight deed, except from the red, lurid gleam of the fire. Wilhelm begins melting the lead for the bullets. In the forest was now heard a pattering of rain. At intervals came flitting motions of owls, bats, and other light-shunning creatures, scared by the sudden gleam of the fire. Some, dropping from the surrounding boughs, placed themselves on the magic circle 
where, by their low, dull croaking, they seemed to be holding dialogue with the men's skulls in some unknown tongue. Their numbers increased, and amongst them were indistinct outlines of misty forms that went and came, some with human faces. A, a mad old crone appears briefly to chant an ominous song about what the devil might have in store, but Wilhelm dismisses her and continues his work. Now came all at once a rattling as of wheels and a cracking of coachmen's whips. A carriage and six horses drove up. Take way there, I say. Clear the road. Wilhelm looked up and saw sparks of fire darting from the horses' hooves and a circle of flame about the carriage wheels. By this, he knew it to be the work of the fiend and never stirred. Wilhelm cowered down to the ground beneath the dash of the leader's forelegs, but the airy train and the carriage soared into the air with a whistling sound round and round the circle and vanished in a hurricane which moved not a leaf of the trees. Wilhelm continues his work as midnight approaches. He is charged by a boar, which proves to be an apparition, and this is followed by images of uh, an imperiled Kaitchen, uh, the old crone again, and the uh, peg-legged soldier. And then he hears the midnight bells chime in the village. Now came up slowly a horseman upon a black horse. He stopped at the effaced outline of the magic circle and spoke thus. Thou hast stood thy trial well. What wouldst thou have of me? Nothing of thee, nothing at all, said Wilhelm. What I want, I have prepared for myself. I, but with my help, therefore part belongs to me. By no means, by no means. I bargain for no help, I summon thee not. The black rider laughs scornfully, reminding Wilhelm that he may take home the bullets, but they are not all his. Sixty for thee, three for me. The sixty go true, the three go askew. Averting his eyes, Wilhelm insists he doesn't know the stranger or why he should make such a claim. The black horseman turned away his horse and said with gloomy solemnity, Thou dost know me. The very hair on my head, which stands on end, confesses for thee that thou dost. I am he, whom at this very moment thou namest in thy heart with horror. And so, when the wedding day dawns and the commissioner arrives, he surprises Wilhelm, asking that before his formal test of marksmanship, he join him on a hunt where his abilities in the field may be observed. They return, loaded with game, and the commissioner delighted with Wilhelm's performance. But as a final test to satisfy long-standing formalities of the law, he directs Wilhelm to take aim at a dove sitting on a pillar at some distance. Kitchen, who stands ready in her bridal gown, does not want to see the innocent little bird killed, but Wilhelm takes aim. A stream of blood flowed down her face, her forehead was shattered, and a bullet lay sunk in the wound. 
The peg-legged soldier suddenly appears amid the wedding guests to taunt Wilhelm as he collapses in shock. The gamekeeper and his wife spend the rest of their lives weighted by inconsolable grief, and... Wilhelm, the fatal marksman, wore away his days in a madhouse. So this opera I've been mentioning, from which uh, you're hearing a bit of music, follows much the same story, except that it uh, inserts a uh, treacherous friend and romantic rival who encourages our hero, here called Max, to uh, cast the bullets. Interestingly, as in the Phantom of the Paradise film, this traitor character himself has already made a pact with the devil, and his attempt to draw the hero into the devil's magic is part of a plan to buy himself more time. The black rider here, renamed Samuel, appears on foot rather than horse, and the location of the ritual is not the crossroads, but a haunted gorge called uh, Wolf's Glen. The Wolf's Glen set, called for in the libretto, includes uh, a number of pine trees, a waterfall in which an apparition of uh, Max's beloved appears to be drowning, uh, cr- craggy rocks on which his mother's ghost manifests, uh, withered trees uh, struck by lightning and strangely glowing and uh, various lighting effects with uh, scudding clouds glowing moon and a mortar for melting the lead with uh, its flames flickering an unnatural green there are also appearances by night birds a phantom boar fiery rolling wheels and a chorus of owls with glowing eyes so a scene that may appeal to uh, some of uh, our listeners Uh, Even if uh, Weber uh, does supply a bit more happy ending to his story than we heard in uh, Apple's uh, retelling. That's where old George found himself, out there at the crossroads molding the devil's bullets. Now, perhaps it's crossed your mind that the uh, Freischutz uh, story has parallels to the uh, gamble uh, taken with dictive substances... uh, with the uh, dangerous uh, panacea of sorts and a peg-leg figure offering the the first one free. Um, If this struck you, you're not alone. The singer-songwriter Tom Waits and beat author William Burroughs, both of whom have experience in this realm, uh, adapted the story in their 1990 musical, The Black Rider, The Casting of the Magic Bullets. The parallels are even more unsettling when you consider uh, Burroughs' uh, questionably accidental shooting of his wife Joan in Mexico City in 1951. Nevertheless, the production, which is still occasionally staged, is an interesting interpretation of the legend, one that returns in a certain way to the darker narrative of the version from the Book of Ghosts. You must have just the right bullets and the first one's always free. You must be One last thing, to return to the Phantom of the Opera, as promised. As you'll recall, uh, LaRue's prologue mentioned the discovery of a skeleton presumed to be the Phantoms beneath the Opera House. 
Uh, here, there happens to be an interesting link to Der Freischutz. There's a book mentioned in La Rue's uh, prologue, an 1856 memoir by uh, Nestor Roqueplan, a former manager of the opera, from uh, which uh, La Rue uh, seems to have drawn inspiration for the disposition of the phantom's bones. Some have assumed that Roqueplan uh, fabricated the story, but I find it reported earlier in an 1841 edition of a London cultural journal called The Mirror of Literature, Amusement, and Instruction. It begins... In the second act of Der Freischutz, our readers will recollect that the figure of a human skeleton is introduced on the stage. In the representation of this terrific episode at the Paris Opera, an actual human skeleton is used, and the history of this skeleton is somewhat curious. In 1787, an occasional extra or stand-in actor by the name of Bois Maison uh, fell in love with a celebrated dancer of the opera. Uh, the dancer encouraged him somewhat, but expressed preference for a sergeant major of the guards employed by the opera. Bois Maison uh, challenges the uh, sergeant major, but it's treated as a joke, and the actor's uh, tied up and tossed into a closet where he spends the night. Uh, he becomes a laughing stock, and shortly fell sick and died brokenhearted. But uh, in his will, he made a curious request to the uh, opera's house physician. He requested him to preserve his skeleton in the theater itself, so that even in death, he might still remain in the proximity of her, whom living he had so dearly loved. So a request not unlike that made by the phantom asking that Christine see him buried beneath the opera where he can forever be close to her. A tragic or perhaps bittersweet end to the opera ghost and, uh, coincidentally, our episode. I hope everyone's been enjoying our shows and that uh, you might have the uh, opportunity to share some of the episodes you enjoy with uh, friends. Uh, we particularly appreciate reviews as uh, these are the best way to raise this show's visibility on Apple Podcasts and other distributors. If you've left a review, by all means, let me know and we'll give you a little shout out on the show. I notice we have a couple of new reviews from people I'd love to thank if they uh, contact me. Our website, boneandsickle.com, provides links to our Facebook group and Twitter, along with uh, show notes that are filled with images and video links uh, to uh, film trailers and clips and uh, bits of music used in the program. Um, music and sound design otherwise are all original uh, for this show. Uh, you can find our donor link also on the site. Uh, Patreon members have a choice of rewards, including uh, exclusive access to uh, extra elements that go into the making of the uh, podcast. It's sort of the full picture. You get digital downloads of rare books used in the preparation for the show, uh, the uh, show soundscapes, which are what you hear beneath me talking, and my uh, Krampus book, as well as a signed 8x10 photo of Wilkinson suitable for framing and adulation. Uh, donation levels begin at $1 a month, and your support via Patreon is the sole support that makes possible uh, me continuing to regularly make available this extremely labor-intensive production. A special thanks to our new patrons, uh, Herb Asherman, Nadia 
Astorga, I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, William Eichholz, Peter Raftos, and to uh, Joanne Ball and uh, Tabitha Mata for upping their pledge levels. This show is written and produced by me, Al Reitnauer, and Wilkinson is played by Rick Gallagher. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>